Greyhound to trap one. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? You're listening to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark McManus, and my co-host today is Jason Miller. Hi, Jason. Good afternoon, Mark. Thanks for having me on again. No problem. So you're uh, pretty fresh from the Gallifrey One convention in Los Angeles? Yes. Less than two weeks ago was my fifth visit in the last, I guess, 12 years. So I don't get there nearly enough. It, yeah, it always looks absolutely brilliant. I'm always sort of jealously reading tweets every year uh, for, from people that are there. Uh, so obviously you've been five times. I guess you really enjoy it. Yeah, what, what I like about it the most, well, that would be too much for a single podcast, but you've got about 3,500 attendees, and then probably in the neighborhood of 100 professional guests, not to mention all the organizers and staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Lyon, the director, has basically five or six different program tracks going on at once between interviews with the guests and fan panels and the uh, masquerade event. And there's actually a real-life true science series of panels as well. So there's so many different conventions going on under the same roof. So different groups of fandom go to the con for different reasons. So most of the panels that I attend are classic series panels, since that's still my primary interest. Mm -hmm. And most of the fans who attend the classic series panel tend to be fans of a certain age, you know, 40s, 50s, or beyond. Some younger, some older, but Mm -hmm. mostly an older strain of fandom, many of whom are cosplaying as classic series doctors and companions. But when you're in the karaoke room or the disco at night, much, much younger crowd who are not there for the classic series. And when you're walking around the concourse in between panels, you'll see all sorts of cosplay literally covering six decades of fandom. Mm -hmm. You will have folks dressed literally as every doctor, and you will have folks dressed up as companions. I have a friend who dresses up every year as Polly from the War Machines, You'll see costumes from the Underwater Menace, Robots of Death. Uh, there was actually a couple of Ogre from Stones of Blood this year. <laughs> Not to mention all the cosplayers from the new series. There were dozens and dozens of Jodie Whittakers, several Amy Ponds. Uh, you had a couple of two-year-old kids dressed up in full Weeping Angels garb, which is hilarious. <laughs> so you go to the con and you can pretty much run into every corner of fandom. And our fandom has many corners. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that does sound absolutely huge. Um, definitely bigger than any convention I've been to. Uh, and you were on a couple of panels this year yourself? Uh, yes. Uh, I am obviously very small potatoes when it comes to organized fandom. If you read Paul Cornell's write-up of Galley in his blog, he obviously comes from a much more in-crowd in terms of professional fans and uh, podcasters. However... Even though I'm really a nobody in the grand scheme of things, Sean was kind enough to put me on two panels this year. So the first panel I did was a discussion of the most recent series, Series 11, Jodie Whittaker's first. Mm. Not a review of the season per se, but a review of how it harkened back to previous Doctors, classic series and new. So that was moderated by Kyle Anderson from Nerdist, who also participates in several other Doctor Who-related podcasts. So mm. that's a 
pretty intimidating panel to be on. Yeah. And then later the same day, Friday, I was involved in a third doctor retrospective panel. And once again, I was the least distinguished panelist on. There was uh, an actor who had been in, in the TV movie. There was the gentleman who does the illustrations for the Paul Cornell Inked Third Doctor comic series, Heralds of Destruction. And then you had two members of the restoration team. You had Paul Venezes and Richard Molesworth. And I'm sitting on the same panel as these two guys, and I realize that my living room is a shrine to their work because I have every one of the restoration team DVDs going all the way back 20 years. Mm-hmm. Richard Molesworth has written two books, and I have both of them on my shelf right next to my DVDs. So I thank those two profusely for all the value they've added to my apartment. <laughs> they were very humble and very kind about it. But it was a really, really good panel. We really discussed every element of The Third Doctor. And if you went on internet fandom in the 90s, The Third Doctor was pretty much at a low ebb. Mm-hmm. But now that he's so far in the distant past, pretty much everybody in the room loved The Third Doctor. And one of our panelists said that his favorite Pertwee story was the Time Monster, which is not <laughs> traditionally a mainstream opinion, it seems to your laughter that you agree. But here you had a panelist literally celebrating Time Monster as his favorite story, and lots of folks in the room were nodding vigorously and applauding rather than laughing wow. in derision. So that was a really, really positive experience. That's it. They say every story is somebody's favorite, don't they? Uh, that's true. I mean, my very first episode as a fan back in 1984 was Time Flight, and I'm still here, so yeah. <laughs> the worst stories have somebody who loves them. So two more highlights of the con for me. Number one, you had William Russell and Carol Ann Ford both present, and William Russell is now in his mid-90s, and he's still attending conventions. Yeah. So I don't usually get autographs, but I made sure to get autographs from those two, and uh, the other part that was really, really neat for me was the restoration team took over the main stage, um, which is the biggest room at the hotel, and they showed about an hour's worth of clips from past and upcoming projects. So they showed a sneak preview set of trailers from the forthcoming Season 18 Blu-ray box set, which I am dying to see. Yeah. So they showed a reworked clip from Logopolis, and they also showed some of the extras that are going to be on the box. In fact, Legopolis, which is my favorite story, is actually getting a theatrical screening here in the States in two weeks to yeah. advertise the upcoming DVD. Yeah, I saw that on Twitter. That's uh, that's pretty cool. We're not getting any um, cinema shows here. I think the BFI have, have put a show on it in the last couple of weeks, but, but not kind of any kind of mainstream release like that. Yeah, I can go to my favorite theaters in Brooklyn and Manhattan and go see Legopolis in two weeks, so I'm definitely going to be doing that. But even more intriguing is there is an animated version of Macra Terror coming out in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. And they showed a 90-second animated clip that looks phenomenally good. Macra Terror is maybe not the best-remembered story because it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But if you track out the old reconstructions, it's really, really funny. And I think the animation is going to just bring a whole new series of fans to the Macra Terror. Patrick Troutman at his best. Yeah, it's um, it's because it's one where there's no existing episodes at all, isn't it? Um, so there's not there one maybe that... like a minute worth of clips that were discovered by the Australian censors 20 years ago. Yeah, but yeah, there's no no surviving just the surviving soundtrack and the loose cannon reconstruction. But this and is your chance to watch the whole thing live as animation. And did you actually get to see the macro on the clip? No, the clip was 
there's a scene in the middle of the story where Patrick Troughton is grabbing a piece of chalk and is writing out a complicated series of mathematical formulas on a window, trying to figure out what the colony is using for its gas. So they don't show the macro in the clip, but it's 90 seconds of Troughton clowning about at his best. So pretty much the whole room was in stitches for that clip, yeah. even though there were no macro in it. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. I've got that pre-ordered uh, along with, with season 18. Maybe they will include Gridlock, the episode, as an extra feature on the Macro Terror DVD because most younger fans will only know the Macro from that story. Yeah, absolutely. The macro as they originally were. Yeah, I remember that that moment in, in Gridlock uh, when they appear. It was the uh, the least likely sort of uh, uh, resurrection of a classic series monster ever, wasn't it? <laughs> and I, I had not been spoiled in advance. I had no idea that was coming, and I literally fell off the bed i was like yeah. i was not expecting a macro return no no it was very well done wasn't it very clever uh, so we've both been reading uh scratch man by tom baker uh by james goss writing as tom baker depending <laughs> on your point of view yeah it's not um it does seem like james goss has been helping doesn't it well oh. i have a few thoughts on that number one You've got Tom Baker as an 85-year-old man whose primary shtick in life is not remembering any of his time on Doctor Who at all. <laughs> in the making of Legopolis documentary for the Blu-ray, which they teased at Galley, the restoration team teased, the only clip they showed of Tom Baker was Tom Baker saying, are you saying that I was in the story? <laughs> so you have an 85-year-old with a poor memory, and this is a book that is loosely based on a script that he and Ian Martyr would have collaborated on about 45 years ago. Mm. And when you read Scratch Man itself, it is full of several deep-cut references to the classic series, including some moments uh, screen-grabbed from the Sarah Jane Smith adventures. This book was written by a fan, a serious, serious fan. And I think of all the words you can use to describe Tom Baker, a Doctor Who fan is not one of them. So whoever wrote this book would really, really have had to have known his stuff. Yeah. And with James Ross's name appearing on the title page but not on the copyright page, I think it is fair to say that this was a lot more Goss than Baker. But yeah. your mileage may vary. Yeah, I, I get the impression he's probably uh, kind of adapted the, the original synopsis and then maybe Tom has had a bit of a say in it and a bit of, uh, bit of oversight. But I know what you mean. There's a lot. Tom of... Baker may have contributed a draft, or he may have uh, dictated a whole series of scenes that he wanted in the book. But I can't imagine Baker sitting there with a quill pen and a pot of ink writing this thing by midnight <laughs> candlelight. I sort of imagine him with a typewriter, like in Robot, when he leaves that that note for for Sarah Jane. <laughs> Just with <laughs> oh, the, yes. the really uh, fast uh, typing, you know. <laughs> uh, yes, with with the camera sped up to make it seem as if he is a speed typist. Yeah, <laughs> he turned the whole book out in three days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably not how it worked out in real life no no um but i was um I was, I was quite interested to see how much of the book is from the original story so i dug out my copy of doctor who magazine number 379 which uh, has got a big article uh, it was kind of the cover story on that one back from 2007 uh so yeah it was it was interesting to see what they what they kept or what they then expanded on um, so one of the really interesting things is so he's written in the first person from the Doctor's point of view, which is unusual. 
And I should caveat that Tom Baker has recorded the audiobook. Mm-hmm. I read the Kindle edition rather than purchasing the audiobook. I am sure the audiobook I would have enjoyed much more because no matter what I thought of the flaws in print, I'm sure many of those flaws are easily papered over when you have six hours of Tom Baker talking to you. Yeah, I haven't got the audiobook yet, but I definitely intend to buy it. Um, I think it will be a joy hearing him uh, deliver it. And that would be the advantage to recording it in the first person or writing it in the first person because that gives him a chance to do what he does best, which is play the doctor, play the yeah. fourth doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess uh, thinking about it now, actually, the day of the doctor, the target novelization was written from the doctor's point of view as well. So it's it's something that's maybe coming more into vogue. I know when the BBC started doing the Doctor Who books uh, in 1996 after the TV movie, it was in their writer's guidelines that we we shouldn't even really see things from the doctor's point of view or, or be privy to his thoughts um, because they thought it would ruin the mystery. Whereas there's, there's, I guess, Day of the Doctor and this, we get more of an insight into what the Doctor's thinking. Um, here I thought it worked very well because uh, you get the, the Doctor's kind of quite glib, eccentric kind of retorts, but also what he's thinking at the same time and what he's really trying to do. So, uh, it, especially for the Fourth Doctor, I thought that worked really well. Just to expand on what you said and to disagree very slightly... So even going back to the Target novelizations, which started in 1973, Mm -hmm. uh, the line of Target books being literally as old as your your co-host today, the Target books were never, ever written in the Doctor's first person, except for maybe a couple of chapters of The Romans, which was adapted for Target as a series of letters and diary extracts. Mm. But that's almost 160 books, which none of which are from the Doctor's POV. So you certainly have a long tradition of the Doctor never telling his own story. But one of the clever things about the Day of the Doctor novelization, and I know when I was on your show we talked about one of the other books, not that, but for Day of the Doctor you were never quite sure which of the 13 Doctors was doing the narrating. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's revealed until the very final, final segment. Whereas this book it is indubitably the fourth Doctor and there is no mystery about which Doctor is doing the talking. Yeah. So... Day of the Doctor arguably may have been a little more clever in its use of first-person narration. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was um, there was constant um, kind of trickery in Day of the Doctor, wasn't there, where they'd say, this isn't the Doctor talking, but then it would be the War Doctor, the one who obviously doesn't call himself Doctor and, and stuff like this. Uh, yeah, this is very much very easy to hear in the fourth Doctor's voice, isn't it? Right, or in Day of the Doctor, where they have the one chapter from the point of view of all three doctors locked in the tower, War 10 and 11, and the narration switches. So it starts off narrated by one, and then the middle is narrated by another, and then the last third of the chapter is narrated by the third, all in sequence. Mm. That was tremendously clever writing, which uh, Scratchman, I don't believe, possesses that same degree of cleverness. No. No, that's true. Uh, We've got um, a framing device uh, in this book, uh, which I don't think is in the original kind of uh, movie version synopsis at all, where the Doctor's on trial kind of thing, again, by the Time Lords. Um, but a bit more like the second Doctor's trial in the War Games than the, the trial of a Time Lord for the sixth Doctor. I felt like where fortunately, he was... Fortunately, yes, fortunately the Valyard was not present in this book. No. <laughs> 
Um, but the, where he's sort of pinned in place by a beam of light, that that felt more like the kind of uh, the kind of high technology that the the Time Lords had in the war games. You know, where it was it's much more kind of stripped back. Um, you didn't see too much of their technology and civilization. And in this story, he is being threatened with removal from the time stream, which is definitely taken from the war games, because that was how they dispatched the bad guys in war games. But Mm. he's being interrogated by somebody called the Zero Nun, Mm. who is holding the Sword of Never over his head. I don't know if that is a character from some other part of the Doctor Who mythology, but I wasn't sure where the author or authors were going with the Zero Nun and who she was supposed to represent. Yeah, I'd never come across that before. I think I think it was adding to Time Lord mythology a bit. Um, but we also find out that Time Lords carry Perigosto sticks, which um, is, is kind of one of the deep cuts that you're talking about, because that's from the Green Death, isn't it? That the third Doctor referred uh, to. It's un- unlikely something that Tom Baker would have rattling around in his head. Right, that was a word I believe I first came across it in... Barry Letts' novelization of The Demons, a book which is, again, almost 45 years old. So, uh, yes, I don't think that's a word that Tom Baker would have at his fingertips. No. You have to be a really, really certain breed of fan to know what a Paragato stick is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's probably probably uh, contradictory accounts of what it is as well in, uh, in various spin-off media. Uh, yes, because they never Barry Letts never gave a definition in the first place. No, it's just we hear the sort of tail end of an anecdote, I think, that the third Doctor's telling, don't we, about, um, I can't quite remember what it is, but it's like never shake your perigosto stick at a some kind of alien monster or something like that, I think. Uh, right, whereas in the Demon's novelization, I think it was the Master who was remembering he and the Doctor had stolen some Time Lord's perigosto stick. Right. I don't remember the exact quote off the top of my head. But it, it definitely is something that... I would say 98% of the book's audience is probably going to have no idea that it's a Doctor Who reference at all. Yeah. (laughs) But Uh, we're talking about the same book that has deep cut references to uh, the Mind Robber and the Brain of Morbius, among other stories. hmm. So blink and you miss it. Yeah. Uh, So they've got the, um, the, the Time Lords are very, very much kind of as they are in the TV show, aren't they? They kind of, uh, very conservative, disapproving, uh, the kind of Brexiteer types, I suppose, uh, we might think of them in this country, um, where they, they're just sort of very insular. They are horrified by the doctor going out and um, kind of trying to help people or save the universe. Even the idea that the universe is under threat, they kind of, they kind of sneer at. They think it's just something the doctor says all the time. Uh, kind of think it's fake news, like climate change. Um, yes. And the doctor is literally talking for his life because he's being threatened with extinction. And I've called up the online transcript for the Green Death, and you're right. Uh, it's uh, they're having dinner at Professor Jones's community, and the doctor says, "Well, the moral of the story, of course, is never trust a Venusian shanghorn with a Paragosto stick." That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that more from the Barry Letts book, but as the Green Death was co-written by Barry Letts, I guess that was his word. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it, doesn't it? Uh, so the, uh, the so the, the frame device. Oh, sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah, the frame device is the Doctor relaying uh, the story of his recent adventure to the Time Lords. Um, and it interrupts the narrative every two or three chapters. So every time hmm. the book starts to pick up a little bit of momentum, you flash forward to the Doctor's trial. I'm not persuaded that all those flash forwards to the trial added a whole lot of value to the book. No, it's sort of like a, I don't know, I guess it's a Greek chorus, you call it, isn't it? Where you've got the, the characters commenting on the action um, in between scenes. And when we come to the end of the book, there is a second Greek chorus as well. So maybe that's one Greek chorus too many. Mm. Uh, so what we learn is that the Doctor, Sarah and Harry have uh, arrived on an island. Um, it's never really specifically said where they are. The Doctor thinks they might be on the Silly Islands. He says off the coast of Scotland. Um, but Sir James Smith points out then that the Scilly Islands aren't anywhere near Scotland. But I did kind of keep getting the impression that they were on a Scottish island. Um, the surnames of the characters are quite Scottish because you've got Mrs. Tullock and there's a character whose surname's Campbell. Um, and then I think Mrs. Tullock asks the Doctor as well if he's from Inverness, which sort of suggested to me that they, they probably are off the coast of Scotland somewhere. Uh, speaking as an American who's never been to Scotland at all and has only spent four days in London and the surrounding countryside, for me it wasn't the geographic location that was so important as the emotional location. This is yeah. strictly a Hammer Horror movie island. Yeah. And it exists only in the movie. So this is one of the islands from The Wicker Man or from any one of many, many other Hammer Horror type movies. The insular islanders who are being threatened with some sort of monster and they're too thick-headed and stubborn to understand what's happening until for most of them it's too late. That was the more important setting of the book. The, the first half is a very tongue-in-cheek Hammer Horror pastiche. Yeah. And it felt like uh, we see the, the Hinchcliffe era where, where we had this TARDIS team. Uh, would take the kind of iconography from from horror movies and things like that, but they never really did zombies, did they? Which I guess this is they're, they're not zombies. They the the monsters that they initially face are these sort of animated scarecrows who we go on to learn people who've been turned into scarecrows. But the imagery is quite like that of of a zombie film, especially when they everyone holds up in a church, um, and then you get the zombies sort of surrounding it and staggering towards it. Um, it felt like that's what they were that's what they were playing with here. But as a very, very serious devotee and fan of the Hinchcliffe years, I want to say that this book, while superficially that may be a Hinchcliffe-era lift, this was a very, very un-Hinchcliffe-era novel in that it was so relentlessly tongue-in-cheek. It was almost a parody of a certain type of story, whereas... As a thought experiment, let's talk about what we like most about Doctor Who and Tom Baker's portrayal of the role during the Hinchcliffe years. For me, that's very easy. For me, Tom Baker's Doctor during the Hinchcliffe years was whimsical and funny at times, but he was also dead serious and had a very dark, dark, dark dismissive edge which didn't come across in scratch man this was more of the whimsical buffoonish literally walking his way through the scenery graham williams doctor in the book 
which may be what Tom Baker was more comfortable with. So that's why they give him co-author credit. That was the doctor he wanted to play rather than the one that Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes gave him. But also the Hinchcliffe stories just weren't funny. They were serious and scary. Mm. I think Robert Holmes' quote is, the whole point was to frighten the pants off of little children or something like that. This was not a frightening book. There were some scary, horrific moments, but it's always undercut. So you have these scarecrows that start menacing the doctor and Sarah and Harry and the few surviving villages, and they take refuge in a church in order to protect the villagers who have not been turned into scarecrows already. But whereas in the Philip Hinchcliffe years, you would have some very scientific and serious way of combating the menace, here the doctor builds a Time Lord machine using Artron energy, a term that did not exist in Doctor Who mythology when the script was first put together mm-hmm. in the early 70s. That's a word that comes from Fort of Doomsday, which makes this our second straight podcast recording, which contains a <laughs> continuity reference to Fort of Doomsday, by the way. That's true, yeah. We had the... Um... Let's... The Monopticans, didn't we, last time, yeah. Let's And The Good Doctor by Juno Dawson. Let's see how long we can keep this streak going. Yeah. Let's try and find a <laughs> Fort of Doomsday reference in our next recording as well, even though that would, on its surface, be hard to do. Yeah. So the Doctor builds this Archron device that is going to weaponize the moths that live in sweaters that are being sold at a church jumble sale. Mm-hmm. This is almost a parody of Doctor Who, and... Maybe it's funny, especially if Tom Baker delivers it on in the audiobook, but this is not an authentic period piece for me that captures the spirit of what I loved so much about Tom Baker's first three seasons. This was a little too jokey and a little too parodic for me. Uh, I am sure, Mark, that you have a very different opinion on the weaponized Archon Energy Moths. Well, I, th- I find it interesting what you say there, yeah. I think there probably is an element where Tom Baker is maybe more comfortable playing that side of, of the Doctor. I think thinking about his big finish output, um, you haven't seen that more sort of flinty, hard-edged uh, Doctor. The, you're right, it was in his in his first uh, first couple of seasons. Um, it will be interesting to listen to the audiobook and see whether the delivery of, the, of some of the lines is more like that. Um, I think there is the odd line that that could be that more sort of uh, serious fourth doctor. I think uh, there's bits in the in the barn where they, they discover the, the fertilizer um, and he's describing what the fertilizer is made of and, and the effect that it has that could maybe, you could hear it in the, uh, the sort of the fourth doctor. Um, I always really love that line in the Seeds of Doom where he's talking about the uh, the guy that's been turned into a um, crinoid, and he's as it's staggering through the snow, he's talking about how it's a, a parody of a human being and all, and and, that, and those kind of lines. So you could hear him; he could be saying it like that, but he could be saying it quite lightly as well. So um, I do intend to get the audio book, and it will be interesting uh, to see how some of the lines come out. Um, and the other line from Seeds of Doom, which is one of my top ten stories, as are many of the other Hinchcliffe era stories. Mm. When he's looking at the first human victim's blood under the microscope on the Antarctic base, and he says in his best chocolate-deep early Tom Baker voice, interesting, isn't it? A human whose blood is turning into vegetable soup. Yeah. So he delivered the line, no matter how silly it looked on paper, he delivered the line so chillingly. Maybe he does the same thing in the audiobook for Scratch Man. I don't know. 
Yeah, it, I'll be I'll be really interested to hear that. Um, generally, the I was picturing the the sort of the the scene as looking quite like Terror of the Zygons. I think because I was I was picturing it in Scotland and hearing the characters with Scottish accents as well. But the it describes quite bleak, isn't it? And we think about the sort of uh, location shots on Terror of the Zygons, and it was all kind of foggy and bleak and and you know kind of moorland and stuff um and uh, i think we get the idea this is set after terror of the zygons because there's a um, there's a line later on where the the doctor remembers sarah jane having been chased by the loch ness monster um so it's uh it's a it's presumably harry rejoined the tardis crew uh for more more adventures after he left uh, after he stopped traveling with them in terror of the zygons um, but yeah, it gave me that sort of, uh, which was maybe feeding into my my sense that it was a, because that's quite, um, it's not a story that's that funny either, is it? The uh, the Terror of Zygons is one of my favourites, but there's some some quite chilling stuff. And that, that scene, I can't remember what the Doctor's saying in it, but whatever he's talking about, and then the bagpipe music that's, that's on in the background just cuts out suddenly um, at quite a portentous moment for what he's saying. Uh, so maybe that was feeding into the way that I was uh, I was reading it as well. Anyway, well, you're feeding into my uh, obsessive fan consciousness here. I was trying to figure out exactly when this episode was supposed to have taken place because, as you point out, it's a Doctor Sarah Harry story, and it had to have been a Harry story because Ian Martyr co-wrote the original script. Mm-hmm. There is a reference when the doctor discovers that the humans are being genetically manipulated to turn into scarecrows and then eventually slightly more sturdy mahogany creatures made of wood, mm-hmm. he says, as if somebody has been watching our recent adventures, which explore what it means to be human and less than human and is copying that, which ties into a whole run of stories in season 13, such as, uh, Seeds of Doom, where humans are mutating or morphing, or Planet of Evil, where a human also mutates and morphs. But those are season 13 high gothic Hinchcliffe stories, which, with one exception, did not have Harry in them, because he ejects at the end of Terror of the Zygon. So when did this take place, and how does this fit into our Doctor Who timeline? I realize that almost nobody else who read this book is going to care about that. It was like, wait a minute, when is this supposed to have happened? Because they never say that Harry's rejoined us. It looks as if it's meant to take place in season 12, but it is written as if it takes place in season 13 when Harry had essentially left the show, minus his one minor guest spot in Android Invasion, where he was not actually a member of the TARDIS crew. He just showed up randomly. Yeah, and he doesn't leave with them at the end of that or anything, does he? So it's, uh, oh, there isn't even sort of scope for him to have left. I don't think with them at the end of that. So yeah, this. Uh, I think some... the last, yeah, the last we see of him in the Android Invasion, he's unconscious. So they kind of leave him sort of on a cliffhanger. If memory serves me right. Yeah, uh, it's nice to think that they uh, on a on a trip back to Earth, or maybe to help out Unit, that he he went back off with them for a little while. And if Ian Martyr was still alive, I'm sure we would have a very long series of big finish releases where he's back uh, rejoining the crew, as they did with Nyssa. Yeah. Have Nyssa come back as an older lady. Yeah, or even um, the big finish have got quite a few stories set between Time Flight and Arc of Infinity, haven't they, with um, just the Doctor and Nyssa? 
Right, before they got Janice Fielding back on board. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, as, as you say, the the doctor um, creates a machine that uh, sort of super evolves some moths that are, are living in the uh, in the woolly jumpers from the jumble sale. Um, but he needs uh, some components, so he sends Sarah to the TARDIS, um, and Harry goes to Mrs. Tullock's shop uh, to get some stuff from there. And these are both scenes largely lifted from the movie synopsis, it seems. Um, especially the bit with Harry in the shop, um, which seems to be one of the most detailed, well-worked-out scenes from that original synopsis, um, where Harry is being pursued by these scarecrows, um, but inadvertently and unknowingly is defeating them because uh, what they realise is if their clothes become torn away from them or destroyed, then um, they, they just sort of crumble to nothing. Uh, so uh, Harry keeps sort of uh, catching them with the uh, the cover. They're lifting up the, um, the the sort of passageway through the counter and things like that, doesn't he? Which is is quite slapstick um, for this era. Um, but I, I don't know. I, can't, I could quite imagine Tom Baker and Ian Martin working that out when they were writing the script together. Maybe. Well, two thoughts there. Number one, you have to be a really good director to pull off that kind of slapstick because it's one continuous take where every three steps Harry's, Harry, Harry, Harry moves, some ridiculous catastrophe befalls a scarecrow behind him. So you have to be a really good director. And Douglas Campfield definitely could have pulled that off. Mm. He was the same guy who had the Cybermen shooting at Patrick Trout's feet in the invasion. Yeah. So it's possible that it could have been pulled off. On the other hand, when you're making a TV show, you're – stuck inside a television center for 12 or 14 hour days. And a lot of that is downtime. Maybe you're only recording for about 90 minutes out of those 12 or 14 hours. You can imagine Tom Baker and Ian Martyr getting very, very loopy yeah. and getting very, very giddy plotting out this script, which they probably never thought was going to get made in the first place. Mm. I'm sure to them in 1974, 1975, this was the height of humor. <laughs> I'm just not sure how well it translates to reality, certainly on the printed page. If you like your Doctor Who to be farcical and parodic, yes, it's a very, very funny moment. But especially for what's ostensibly a Hinchcliffe-era story, I thought it was out of place. And my initial text to you after I read that chapter was, this is terrible. And you, of course, immediately wrote back with the opposite opinion. (laughs) At least here we're giving uh, airing to both opinions. Yeah, I didn't love it. Um, I thought it fit quite well with with Harry's character of of being quite sort of uh, I guess kind of happy go lucky and stuff. Um, but it also it, it underscores when we get to the end of the first part of the book, um, you know, because I think one of the problems we had with the Cricket Men, which which is also by James Goss, was there was no sense of peril in that book whatsoever. No matter what happened to Doctor and Romana. They were very glib all the time and, and, and shrugged everything off. Whereas I felt like this this didn't go to those kind of lengths. Um, and especially at the end of book one where Sarah and Harry do actually get turned into the scarecrow creatures. Um, which did not happen in the movie synopsis, which you and I have both read prior to recording this. So no. that was added on by yeah. Goss and Orbiter to up the stakes. Yeah, which which wasn't something, as I say, he wasn't interested in doing in The Cricket Men. Um, so... I felt like that that kind of all the lucky escapes that Harry went through in the shop was, you know, then served to make that more of a more of a, a dramatic event when it happened. 
But even then, when the Doctor eventually, spoiler alert, rescues Sarah and Harry in the second half of the book, they are no longer scarecrows. That was merely a trick to lure the Doctor away. So that's a scary moment, but there's zero payoff. The Doctor doesn't have to work to turn them back into human. He just rescues them in about 30 seconds, several chapters on. Mm -hmm. And they are no longer in peril. No, we had a few chapters where we were a bit worried about them, though. Yeah, but when they come back, it's as if nothing bad has happened to them in the first place. Yeah. But uh, moving over to Sarah's adventure inside the TARDIS, in the original script breakdown, the Scarecrow chases her through a series of rooms, including a room that's an enormous jigsaw puzzle. Here, James Goss has different ideas for what that jigsaw puzzle is supposed to represent. Yeah, there's um, it's it's quite a weird one, isn't it? Where the the pieces of the jigsaw represent different parts of Sarah Jane's life. So she can see scenes from from her childhood, from her adventures with the Doctor, um, and then beyond. Right, there are clips from Hand of Fear. There are clips from Canine and Company, the yeah. uh, failed television pilot. <laughs> And then clips from the Sarah Jane Adventures, which was Elizabeth Layden's five years long Doctor Who spinoff mm-hmm. um, in the late uh, 2000 and zeros. Um, but then that turns into uh, something useful because the scarecrow that's chasing her, when, when that steps onto the, the pieces, um, it triggers in the scarecrow memories of what her life as a human was uh, and who she was, which. That was a really. Effective part of the book, actually, because you have the Scarecrow is trying to communicate to Sarah Jane that it remembers who it is and it wants help. And, of course, Sarah can't hear anything the Scarecrow is saying because it doesn't have a voice. Yeah. And she mistakes the cry for help as an attack. That was a really nifty bit of writing, but there wasn't a whole lot of that kind of writing in the book. No, it really uh, – Joanna was the name of the Scarecrow, I think. It, it, kind of, it did kind of, yeah, stay with me that a little bit. It stuck in my mind because it was such a, a tragic figure. Right, but then – she recovers from the attack, and then she winds up being a villain again until she's dispatched. Yeah, and that's that's from the original um, draft as well, isn't it? The idea that the, there's a clock inside the TARDIS, which is also bigger on the inside, and uh, has these huge clockwork mechanisms that the scarecrow gets crushed in. Right, the jigsaw puzzle in the script didn't have the flash-forwards to episodes that hadn't been written yet, but yeah, the, mm. the, the clockwork stuff was all original to the 1974 script yeah um and probably feels like it would have stretched the budget a bit as well i guess i would love to know how they planned on making this thing originally although if you look at the original script synopsis there are no supporting characters it's basically the three regulars and then a bunch of extras the book does give us a few extra supporting characters but the original script is just a very trippy series of bizarre, wacky adventures that befall our three heroes. And it's almost unfilmable unless you have a major, major budget. Yeah, because there's no other villages. The Hammer movies are claustrophobic, but this book covers quite a lot of settings, and it dispatches with the Hammer stuff entirely in the second half. Mm. So I'd love to know how they were planning on getting this off the ground. Yeah, because, yeah, I'm not sure quite how far it got. Um it's it's one of kind of a number of failed movies that never made it, isn't it? Throughout the uh, throughout the history of Doctor Who. Uh, right. I don't know if this one ever actually was given a budget, or if a director was assigned, or if it was just an elaborate joke between 
and Tom Baker and Ian Martin. They never intended to be produced. Yeah, I think the the other guy that's sort of credited, I think he's called James Hill. Um, I think was um, was was co-writing and was was the plan was he was going to direct it. Um, and he went on to do some of Wurzel Gummidge, which was the John Pertwee series, uh, where he played an animated scarecrow, ironically. So <laughs> makes you wonder whether that was some kind which of... Which has a uh, very heavy callback at the end of this book. It does, yeah. yeah. I didn't know whether that had, um, that had made it over the pond, whether it was ever shown over there. I have never seen it. I just know of it from reading a lot of Doctor Who reference materials. That uh, John Pertwee was the voice of an animated scarecrow. Uh, he was the... Uh, it was... I mean, it was animated in the sense that it moved around. It was a live-action TV show, and he was actually in the Scarecrow costume. Um, oh, okay. I didn't realize I that. It, yeah, it was... Uh, I remember it when I was a kid. It was uh, It was pretty good. Uh, I think it's been remade, actually, just as an aside, with Mackenzie Crook from The Office, um, as well as a gummage. Hmm. So, uh, one to look out for. Might make it onto BBC America. BBC America is very busy showing reruns of Star Trek and other American movies. They don't have a whole lot of BBC in the BBC America anymore. Ah, right. Oh, I, I, I always sort of imagined it was all um, <laughs> it was all BBC stuff. It was ten years ago. It is not anymore. Ah, right. Ah, interesting. Uh, so before this is uh, the one of the last things that we see before the end of book one. Um, the uh, the Doctor's been lured to a beach. The uh, the super evolved moths have destroyed the scarecrows, but there and then some two Cybermen walk out of the water. Um, which in the in the original draft, they, there was these creatures called cybors, who are basically the Cybermen. But uh, whether they didn't have the rights or didn't think they'd be able to get the rights, or maybe they didn't want to pay Kit Peddler, um, I suppose. Uh, so they, they arrive at this point, um, and I guess uh, to begin with, you think the Cybermen are behind the plan, um, but they've been working for somebody else, uh, who is then revealed to be the Scratchman, or just Scratchman, isn't it, actually? Um, and so, Sarah, Sarah and Harry have, have been infected with the sort of Scarecrow uh, virus, uh, and then, then are transformed into wood at that point. The Cybermen were pretty horrific here because you can actually see the Cyber Leader's skull through his translucent helmet, which is a much more grotesque portrayal of the Cybermen than you would have gotten at the time that this story was being written. Yeah, that feels so much, much a very more. jokey book. That was a very rare moment of absolute body horror. Yeah, it's very much like something you'd get in the new series, isn't it? The, where the Pandorica opens, where uh, the, the Cyber Helmet opens out and you've got that, that skull rattling around inside. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real reminder. Or World of Time, where you have uh, Bill Potts turn into a 1960s-era Cyberman wearing a canvas face mask rather than a helmet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's more of a reminder of their origins than than you got in uh, in this era, isn't it? Uh, and that was an odd bit for a book written by James Goss in full-on season 17 Douglas Adams romp mode. Mm-hmm. That was a bit of an odd touch, I thought. Yeah. Um, but the, the Cybermen aren't in it very much here, are they? They just kind of uh, they walk back into the sea, having having fulfilled their orders. Um, and the Doctor decides to take the TARDIS into the Scratchman's realm to rescue them. Um, well, the Cybermen, of course, do play a very significant part in the finale. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Scratchman for a second before we get into the second half. 
Uh, I suppose that he is supposed to be a representation of the Christian devil. Yeah. But he's most familiar to you new series listeners as the decoy villain in The Impossible Planet slash The Satan Pit, where that character was voiced by Gabriel Wolfe, Mm-hmm. who had voiced the Egyptian analog to Satan, Sutek, in Pyramids of Mars, which is season 13. So you have the Hinchcliffe-era Doctor Who had already done an episode where the bad guy is a Satan analog, mm-hmm. and Pyramids of Mars, I think, is in everybody's top ten. I know it's certainly in mine. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Here you have a different version of the same type of character as the big bad, but not quite as menacing or sibilant as Gabriel Wolf had been playing Sutek in 1975 or 76. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see to see who played him here because um, I think some accounts that you read that they wanted Vincent Price for this movie, whether he would have voiced Scratchman or not or played a different character, I'm not sure. There really weren't any other characters besides Scratchman for Vincent Price to play in the original script. That's true. Yeah, I guess I guess that's who they uh, who they intended him to to portray. So, as another thought experiment, were you reading Scratchman's lines in the second half in Vincent Price's voice, or did you have somebody else's voice? No, I I was mainly thinking Vincent Price. Um, but that's just from from reading around it and and thinking that was um, that was the most likely. Uh, casting choice I didn't have a specific voice in my head but the voice that I was reading it by which doesn't correlate to any specific actor was not the Vincent Price voice it was more of a more of a comedian playing Satan in a boardroom executive suite Mm. this was more of a funny villain than a typical Vincent Price villain at least from the way that I was picturing it in my head yeah yeah, because he's played, uh, yeah, like you say, um, he's like the chairman of the board, isn't he? Well, what he's described as is um, it's kind of a, a human body in a business suit uh, with a glowing uh, bulb for a head or a, a kind of a, a sphere for a head. But the character is very funny and charming. He gets a few nice confrontations with Tom Baker. That's not the way Vincent Price would have played it. That's why you need more of a comedian in the role. Yeah. It's a funny part with a sinister undertone rather than just a flat-out Vincent Price-type villain. Yeah, maybe they could have got... I'm trying to think who would have been around at that time. Maybe one of the Pythons could have played it. It wouldn't be John Cleese's first brush with Doctor Who, that's for sure. No, that's true, yeah. Yeah, if he uh, if he if he knew Tom Baker from being around the BBC, maybe uh, maybe Tom could have persuaded him to voice this part. That would have been very funny. Yeah, yeah, that would have been good. Uh, so before we get into book two, uh, we've got a, a reading um, by Colin Neal, and this is one of the sort of interchapter sections where the Doctor is is being interrogated by the Time Lords, and this one is called "Fear of Saving the Universe." Fear of saving the universe. There was uproar on Gallifrey. The Cybermen, in league with a creature from another reality that was attempting to invade this dimension? Surely, Doctor, you could see the danger the universe was in? The Zero Nun prowled the stage beside me, being very reasonable, very loudly. Your only option should have been to seal the rift between universes by destroying the Earth. There was a lot of nodding agreement. No, I told them. I had to save my friends. At that, 
there was a sort of palsied eruption. The beam of light tightened its grip around me, and I fought to breathe. Instead of which, you went herring off on another of your adventures. An old Chancellor heaved himself to his feet. Inexcusable. Your duty was simple. Forget your friends. Forget your pet planet. Save the universe. A smug little bank manager's chuckle. After all, isn't that what you do? They waited for me to answer, but I was in too much pain to even blink. The light around me dimmed a little. Well, doctor, prompted the nun as I took a breath. What have you to say for yourself? Her malicious pleasantry reminded me of someone. The unctuous hatefulness of Mrs. Tullock. The idea amused me. Mrs. Tullock would have made a good time lord, a creature of no imagination, no ambition, no love. I rallied. I needed to convince them of what was at stake. I am trying to show you how I've changed, I began. When I left this place, I was still very much a time lord like you. I never set out to save the universe. On my travels, I may have saved the old little world, stopped a few wars, but it was you, you yourselves, who were responsible for the first time I saved the universe. You packed me off to that dreadful chalk pit of a world to save everyone from the master and his doomsday weapon. You needed me to stop him because you know the Time Lords would have been first up against the wall when he took control of it. My Time Lord audience went silent. The sword of never buzzed menacingly over me. Yes, I said. You're not above a bit of meddling yourselves when it suits you. But surely, purred the Zero Nun, that was different. Was it? I asked, innocent as milk. How? Well, piped up Lady with the universe in peril, you should have called us for help. And with your collective refusal to dirty your hands, you'd either have quietly wiped out the earth or just packed me off in that dimension hoping I'd sort things out, which is precisely what I did anyway. Even so, the old goat of a chancellor gave a complicit smile to Lady Pralamandavava. We have to be careful, don't we? Oh, indeed, Chancellor, I said. You have to be very, very careful, especially when you're voyaging into the unknown. Thank you very much, Colin, for providing that reading. Uh, Thank you, Colin. Sorry that I uh, gave you a nearly impossible to pronounce Time Lord name. I didn't realise until until afterwards. <laughs> uh, so the second part of the book, book two, is, is just called Scratchman. And this is the Doctor arriving in Scratchman's domain uh, and immediately forgetting everything, including who he is. And is sort of the surroundings are described basically is described as hell, isn't it? There's sort of rivers of lava and uh, there's uh, there's kind of people suffering around and things like that. Uh, so he's not sure who he is, where he is, what he's doing. And then a black cab incongruously drives by, which he's able to hail uh, and get in. And this is driven by a character called uh, Charon, described as a, as a rat-faced man, which obviously has callbacks to Greek mythology, and there's even a reference to the river of forgetfulness. But again, this is a very jokey character. I was picturing him in a very regional, if not Cockney, accent delivering the lines. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was picturing Cockney as well, because there's a kind of a stereotype of a Cockney cab driver um, who's saying, you, you kind of rhyming off the famous people that he's had in his cab and that kind of thing. Um, and he says he's previously picked up uh, the first three doctors um, so it's like the idea that when each time the doctor's regenerated, that personality has uh, has come to this kind of afterlife. 
Which reminded me a little bit of um, the the Paul Cornell book, uh, Time Worm Revelation, where there's this sort of uh, digital afterlife where the uh, the Seventh Doctor, obviously in that case, um, oh well, no, it's a Seventh Doctor book, but Ace is in this uh, is in this this consciousness of the Doctors, and she meets all his previous incarnations. Um, who, With the exception the... of the Sixth Doctor, for reasons that will become clear in Love and War, which is another Paul Cornell book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the yeah, first just, five Doctors were in Time Worm Revelation. Yeah, uh, and the fifth Doctor's kind of imprisoned, isn't he? And it's, it's a, well, I reread it a couple of years ago, but it's, uh, I can't quite remember the details even now. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what it reminds me of. He's imprisoned out of guilt. Yeah. He was imprisoned out of guilt for what happened to Adric, if memory serves me right. Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. Um, but that kind of idea that they that they live on as distinct personalities um, in in some kind of afterlife, uh, yeah, remind remind me very much of that book. Right, but you have uh, for me the biggest analogy would be the three doctors, where you have this sandpit or quarry that's doubling as an alien world with a very large castle that's incongruously plunked down in the middle of it. Yes. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that uh, yeah, it does just feel like them arriving in the the antimatter universe, doesn't it? Yeah, they, there's um, a, a castle floating in the air um, where the doctors get where the doctors dropped off by the cab, um, and there's uh, there's some weird creatures around who are described as um, part lobster, part ape, um, which is I uh, really struggled to uh, <laughs> to picture, and they're getting sucked up inside the castle. Uh, and we learn later that these sort of fuel um, Scratchman's realm. As I understood it, they were humans who had sold their souls to this Satan analog, and after dying, they moved over to the afterlife, where their remains were sort of mutated and transformed as part of mm. losing their soul. So there, it actually starts to happen to the Doctor himself in one of the chapters where he's walking through the castle, yeah, and he's facing. I guess he's facing his fears for one of a better word. And one of the one of the rooms that he enters is a place is a dinner party where he's being ignored and nobody is paying any attention to him at all. Which for Tom Baker's doctor, of course, is the fate worse than death. And he begins transforming into a beetle. Yeah, not, not a musician, but an actual insect with <laughs> characters. Yeah. Um. Yeah, which is a bit like the Metamorphosis, isn't it? The uh, the Kafka book. Um, Except here, he's rescued by a very unlikely celebrity cameo. Yeah, um, the Thirteenth Doctor herself turns up and, uh, and kind of rallies him round because he's he's had a number of encounters here that, that um, in an attempt to make him feel insignificant and forgotten. Um, he's uh, he's interrogated by a talking lizard um, called Temble. Uh, which, uh, which is Turkish for lazy, um, and this lizard can't really oh. be bothered to interrogate him, which is which for the doctor is obviously very unusual because normally he's the most important prisoner, and they they're trying to to get as much information as they can out of him. And then she says ignored at the dinner party, um, and he starts to kind of give in to this despair a little bit and, and turn into uh, one of the sallows, which are the, the creatures that he saw out in the wild. Um, but uh, yeah, you quickly realise it's the thirteenth Doctor when um, the Doctor's describing the Northern accent and then the um, the rainbow stripe across the T-shirt. And her first words are "Oh, brilliant!" which was Jodie Whittaker's first two words. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 
it was really clever. It was almost psychic of Tom Baker and Ian Martyr in the 1970s <laughs> to be able to predict what the 13th Doctor would look like, sound like, and wear. Yeah. Well done. They must have had a time machine. Very foresighted indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what, what, after this, the Doctor actually meets Scratchman um, and makes him an offer to join him. That, uh, that basically he sees he sees himself as a bit like the Doctor because Scratchman has saved this world and he's seen the Doctor uh, save the universe before. So he says that they should uh, join together. Um, but obviously, the Doctor rejects the deal um, and uh, they have to fight instead. That was a. Interesting chapter, and I would love to hear that recorded, not so much by Tom Baker, but with somebody else playing Scratchman, and hear the two of them just go back and forth with the lines. Mm. Because there's one chapter that ends with the Doctor almost accepting the offer, because it sounds so generous. Mm. And then, of course, the Doctor, uh, of course, immediately pulls his hand back and goes, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's in this for you? Yeah, it's... And that uh, might have been a really thing to hear two live actors record. yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's a bit of a fake-out, isn't it, cliffhanger, of that you think the Doctor's going to literally make a deal with the devil and then uh, and then pulls out at the last minute. So you don't know at first what form the fight's going to take. The Doctor's just running, and then uh, he, he's reunited with Sarah and Harry, um, who are in um, quite a sort of um, esoteric prison, aren't they, where they're imprisoned only because they believe they are. And the Doctor's yes. able to sort of talk them out of it and they can they can just free themselves that was a Philip Hinchcliffe idea from the face of evil where the wall isn't there it's only there because you think it is and if you close your eyes and step through the wall it's, no, it's not there oh uh, yeah I had made that connection yeah I don't know if that was an intentional connection but that was mm. where my mind went since this is ostensibly a Hinchcliffe era story yeah uh, so the the uh, the next bit really reminded me of um, the first Ghostbusters movie because they uh, they they know that the Scratchman is trying to pull fears out of their head, uh, so they try not to think of anything. But then Harry thinks about a pinball machine as this image of the Doctor and Scratchman settling the differences by competing at pinball. Uh, so yeah, remind me, is that was taken directly from the synopsis? Yeah, memory serves me right. Um, but just the because uh, it, it, in Ghostbusters is Ray, isn't it that um, that thinks about the the Marshmallow Man uh, when they're trying the to the Steve Marshmallow Man, yeah. yes. Uh, so that, that's what it reminded me of. But obviously this this um, this predates that. Although I'm not sure if it's in the original synopsis. If, if it, synopsis is if it specifically states that it's out of Harry's mind. Um, but in in the movie version, this was to have been the the climax um, that. Having defeated Scratchman at pinball, uh, and, the, and the defeat is different, isn't it? I think the Doctor uses his scarf to hold back the um, the flippers and things, uh, and the Daleks appear and all this kind of stuff. That they they're just able to get a higher score, and then that Scratchman defeated. Whereas the book goes on uh, some way past it. Well, the biggest disadvantage that you and I have as uh, men born in the seventies or early eighties, we never did or at least I don't want to speak for you, but I've never done LSD. I've never done any hallucinogenic substance. This is a script that is clearly influenced <laughs> heavily by psychedelic imagery, which has kind of fallen out of the cultural mainframe. If somebody were to write this story from scratch in the year 2019, you would not have a gigantic, enormous, trippy pinball table for your climax. 
No, that's true. Yeah, it does. It does feel a bit of that time, um, and and I haven't either. Just just so that's <laughs> that's clear uh, for the for the tape. Um, yeah, that's uh, yeah. It is very odd, isn't it? And again, would have been very difficult to achieve, uh, depending on what on what budget they got. It could have been done, but it's just hard to imagine how. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, in this version, Harry falls through one of the the holes that the um, that the pinballs drop through, um, uh, which underneath there's a huge lake of lava. But he he manages to sort of uh, not fall into that and and uh, kind of falls onto a ledge, from which he uh, he gets into the into another part of the castle. Um, where all the sallows are being just basically thrown into this this lava to uh, to provide as fuel to provide power for the for the realm, uh, he just tells them they're all free, and this this uh, this helps to create a bit of uh, chaos that that leads to uh, them all being able to escape. Yeah, uh, Harry sort of accidentally saves the day. Yeah, uh, I think it was quite clever that bit the way he just sort of walks in and just says. Uh, it says, "Oh, actually, you're all free to go." Scratchman says, "It's uh, it's okay. You're all free." <laughs> yeah, it's it's the kind of thing that was within Harry's abilities anyway. You know, it's uh, that uh, that he would just sort of try and blag it like that. Uh, and then the uh, the Doctor and Sarah and Harry meet the villagers again, the ones who were in the village who uh, I don't think we mentioned it, but they had all got turned into scarecrows um, when the when the church was overrun. Um, Only one of those characters was even given a name, so those characters were kind of ciphers. Yeah. With one exception. Um, and she seemed like the kind of uh, the kind of characters that Tom Baker loved as well. Um, sort of thinking about the... Um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the lady from the Stones of Blood. Um, Amelia... Amelia. Rum, Amelia. Rumford. Rumford. Is that the one from this? Um, there's the one from the Seeds of Doom, and there's the one from the Stones of Blood. The Seeds of the Seeds of Doom was uh, Amelia Ducat. Amelia Ducat. And, and um, the character from Stones of Blood, which I haven't seen in about twenty years. She's not Amelia, is she? She's Professor Professor Rumsford, according to Wikipedia. Rumsford, yes. Oh, yeah. She is. She is. She's Amelia with an E, according to Wikipedia, whereas Amelia. Duca was Amelia with an A from Seeds of Doom. Right. Yeah, I kind of pictured that. In other words, this dotty, oblivious old lady who has a sharp edge. Yeah, and she's called Sophonisba in this, uh, which is a name I've never never come across before. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was visual. Yeah, I had pictured her in, in that sort of mold of, uh, of one of the Amelias anyway from the Tom Baker era. Um, Here's another point where I prefer the Hinchcliffe era to a got here the Hitchcliffe era story so seasons 12 13 14 had very small casts but you always had top flight actors mm-hmm. doing very well as the three or four supporting characters in each story so for example Michael Sheard in Pyramid of Mars or uh, Philip Madoff in Brain of Morbius mm-hmm. or Hubert Reese or um, John Childs who played Scorby in seasons doing really interesting supporting characters and human villains now, this was a book almost without a supporting cast at all, with the exception of Scratchman and Sophia, however you pronounce that. I thought the book was missing 
secondary characters for the three leads to interact with. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're talking about a movie script where you have more of a budget, you should have had room for better characters. Yeah, and I guess that's something that might have got fleshed out sort of in, in subsequent drafts as well. Uh, but we but do. Sophia's book comes back and is an important part of the climax. Yeah, um, along with the scarecrow versions of the first three doctors, which um, I guess, I mean, that's not in the original uh, draft either and, and probably wouldn't have been on the cards. Um, but they're, they're quite a nice addition here, um, especially when they, uh, they start bickering between themselves in, in traditional multi doctor story style. And they were actually. Written very well, and obviously it's tongue-in-cheek, and they're, they're, they're there to serve as a Greek chorus. Yeah. They're not quite the original three doctors, they're not quite bad guys, but it's, it's a lot of fun to read their dialogue. Yeah. And I'd be interested to see... Especially uh, if this were a full, big finish, full cast audio with four actors playing the four roles, that would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that they've got... Um, they, they'd get Fraser Hines to voice the second doctor... And Tim Trelaw for the third Doctor and Peter Purvis for the first Doctor. That would have, uh, uh, that'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to hear how Tom Baker voices them. That's another reason we should come back and talk about the audiobook next time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's definitely on my uh, to buy list. So after you have the three scarecrow characters menacing the hero, and after you have the villagers come back as scarecrows to rescue Sarah. The doctor is abducted by a scratch man and they have one final confrontation. Mm -hmm. And this was probably for me the best part. This was vintage early Tom Baker where he starts quoting from Alexander Pope. He starts reciting poetry, which Tom Baker loved. Yeah. Uh, particularly in horror of Fang Rock or Revenge of the Cybermen. So that was vintage Hitchcliffe era Tom Baker. One of the few moments in the book where I feel he really channeled the character that he had been as opposed to the season 17-era Doctor that James Goss is most at home with. So Scratchman is trying to draw the Doctor's worst fear out of his head so he can menace the Doctor with that fear. Now, this has already been done, interestingly, by the new series as a very serious non-tongue-in-cheek sequel to The Horns of Nymon called the God Complex, yes. where the characters are trapped in a hotel, and each hotel contains a room which contains their greatest fear, and Moffat cheats where you, the doctor sees his greatest fear, but they never show you what it is. Yeah, I think, do they later say that it's the, it's the crack? You hear the cloister bell, but you never actually see what it is. Uh, I mean, maybe, I've, uh, maybe I've just kind of um, inferred that myself as headcanon. I had a vague idea that in the time of the Doctor, that they um, that they say that the crack was in that room, but uh, I, I, I'm probably uh, I've probably either read that into it myself or read it read it somewhere as a fan theory. God Complex is one of my favorite new series stories. I've seen that three or four times. Whereas Time of the Doctor is not one of my favorites, and I haven't seen it since the night that it aired yeah. so i may have missed that yeah i've only seen it a couple of times um and i'm not confident in that statement at all so <laughs> um it's uh it might yeah it, it could just be my own head on that that um that, that sort of explained that afterwards uh yeah and then i suppose um, where doc 
Scratch Man himself for me is what the doctor does here to Scratch Man after Scratch Man has abducted him and is trying to steal his greatest fear. Yeah, I was going to say the other thing is the uh, the uh, mind of evil. The that we learned that the third doctor's greatest fear is fire because he's recently um, had the adventure of Inferno, where he saw the whole world burn, didn't he? And the master's greatest fear is the doctor, which is even better. Yeah, my favorite one though is the American ambassador who's terrified of dragons. <laughs> Uh, terrified of the Chinese, yes. The, I thought it was it not specifically dragons. Does he not see? Um, uh, it's a he sees a dragon. Yeah, but it was it was the U.S. was almost kind of sort of at war with China, and there were the Chinese characters in the story, including the author's wife uh, playing Captain Chin Li. Mm-hmm. So I think in the Terrence Dix novelization, the senator mentions that the dragon is his fear of red China and communists. Ah, uh, right. Oh, I took it literally. So that's why I in the novelization, it's reading upon the story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I took it literally in the uh, in the TV show to uh, think that he was just afraid of uh, a mythological animal. Uh, I remember the other odd thing about that story is that um, they've got, uh, they find out what these people's worst fears were from their medical records. Um, I always think that's quite an odd thing because I don't think my doctor's ever asked me what my worst fear is and recorded it anywhere. <laughs> And for me, for my day job, I read medical records for a living, and I've read mm. thousands and thousands of American <laughs> medical records over the last 17 years. And I can tell you, very few of them mention, what's your greatest fear? Yeah, <laughs> yeah just a handy little uh, plot contrivance, isn't it? I will uh, not have a bad word said about the mind of evil. <laughs> it is a good story. I do, I do like it. Yes. Um. So, but they, in, in this instance, we find out that the doctor's fear is of uh, basically of failing and letting the monsters win, and of not being the fourth doctor anymore, which has an yeah. interesting callback at the very end of the book in one of the epilogues. Yeah, it, it, it feels quite sort of Moffat era that, doesn't it? The the idea that the doctor is something to live up to, um, so that the side of it where he's you know he's worried about and kind of not being good enough and and failing and, and the monsters might win that's that side where you know the 12th doctor talks about how you know the doctor is a is a promise and it's something to live up to and on a really good day you're the doctor um but also the the 11th doctor's final lines of uh you know i'll always remember when the doctor was me the fourth doctor sort of talks in those terms here of um i think there's a line that says something like uh you know i liked being the other doctors but i i loved being this doctor but what's funny about Matt Smith saying that when he regenerates is the 12th Doctor immediately develops post-regeneration amnesia and has no idea who he was. Mm-hmm. And the other line that had resonance for me is when the Cockney cab driver, Sharon, says to the 4th Doctor, you're my Doctor. Yeah. Which is another direct Moffat quote from Time Crash. Yeah, it's, it's the 10th Doctor says that to the 5th Doctor, doesn't he? Yeah. You are my Doctor, yes. Yeah, and that probably is... What you get from a London cabbie it would be the most memorable one. Would be uh, would be the Fourth Doctor. Uh, yes, and it's a good way of, uh, of then turning the. Uh, it's it's a good. I thought it was a, a satisfying way of res- resolving the conflict with Scratchman. Is that that's the fear, and then uh, a lot of the monsters that the Doctor has faced have been turned into these sort of scarecrow or mahogany versions, and they're, they're running riot. So the Scratchman, having taken on the Doctor's greatest fear, 
is then pursued by all these creatures and there's uh, the giant robots there and, and multiple other monsters. So let's do a quick roll call. Uh, you have uh, the Beerusdrop mentioned in Brain of Morbius. You mm-hmm. have the Hexagons, which I believe is a deep cut reference to the Crotons. You have mm-hmm. the Maggots and the Gigantic Wasps from the Green Death. Yeah. Uh, I believe you have the Mutants from the Mutants and several others. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite a little nostalgia trip that wasn't it. <laughs> That's James Goss bringing his favorite monsters back. I think rather than Tom Baker suddenly developing a memory. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and he probably, it, stories he almost certainly hasn't seen he, um, to, to even remember in the first place. <laughs> right. Uh, so, yeah, I felt like, I felt like it was a, a, a good resolution um, was that the, um, that the Doctor's greatest fear was also the means to defeat Scratchman. Right, and Scratchman is ultimately defeated, and the Doctor and Sarah and Harry are able to have, except there's one last bit of anticlimax where Harry almost, Harry and Sarah almost get swallowed up by the Earth as Scratchman's realm was collapsing, mm-hmm. and the cyber the cyber leader has been wandering around. The cyber leader's version of Hell is having to get its emotions back, and it suddenly develops a conscious and rescues Sarah and Harry one last time. Yeah, it says don't ever mention this again. Yeah, yeah, that, and that was that's quite a new series thing, isn't it? As well, um, get that in the uh, the first two part of where they're back. There's the Cyberman that has has her emotions turned back on. It wasn't something they were too concerned with in the uh, in the classic era, right? But that was done to very good effect in Rise of the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get the. Um, the, the woman who's recalling uh, her life, yeah, in that one. And the doctor turns off the inhibitor. Right. Mm. So here you have almost humanized Cybermen because that's what they fear the most. Yeah. And they rescue Sarah and Harry from one last bit of climax, and then they get in the TARDIS and they go home and they go back to finish their picnic, which was interrupted in the first chapter. And who is waiting for the fourth doctor at this picnic? But the 13th Doctor again. One yeah. last time. And where the 4th Doctor had told us that one of his fears was not being himself, here he has a very nice moment with the 13th Doctor, and he comes to accept that his future is in good hands, and that he will go on even after he dies. Yeah. Um, and then there's even a little sort of note from the Doctor at the end, which I thought was really nice. Um, yes. Which is which basically it's Tom Baker as well, isn't it? Um uh, as well as the doctor, because it says, uh, I hope I've been a good doctor. I hope you've enjoyed having me around, and I'll be terribly sad if I ever have to stop being the doctor, so I won't. But if it happens, then I hope you'll always remember me fondly. Uh, I thought that was, I really liked that. I was uh, a little lump in my throat when I read it. Yeah, the book really worked for me the best in the last few chapters. Mm. And there was also a brief glimpse where the doctor was about to fall down a slope, and there's a very quick prefiguring of Wagopolis, which is, of course, how the fourth Doctor eventually dies, yeah. falling off a telescope. Yeah, uh, yeah, because the, uh, the bit we didn't mention was there's also a, a very small cameo from the tenth Doctor, isn't there? Um, where my memory. In the, in the dinner party, um, he thinks he sees Sarah and Harry, um, and he calls to them, but he's ignored. Then he says uh, a young man in a striped suit calls for, calls for them. 
and they go, yes, doctor, and dash off after him. Um, which, again, feeds into his fear of uh, not being the doctor anymore. Um, but also, I thought it was probably the 10th doctor, because uh, that's the doctor after the fourth doctor who Sarah Jane goes on to have a, a couple more adventures with. But I remember, I remember that scene. I did not connect that pinstripe suit guy as the 10th doctor, but I guess you're right. It works much better if you put it that way. Yeah, that's that's how I read it. Anyway, it was uh, it, it was part of that fear of, of him sort of becoming insignificant and uh, yeah, and, and not being the Doctor anymore. Um, and I guess the other thing is, Tennant is the the other most popular one, isn't it? When whenever there's a poll uh, or in the public consciousness, um, certainly in the UK, it's you know for the older generation it's Tom Baker, and the younger generation it's it's David Tennant who are the uh, the go to images uh, yes. of who the Doctor is. Uh, so yeah, it probably works both ways, but also it's it's the one we see uh, who Sarah Jane reconnects with after school reunion. Right, and there is a brief uh, photo still from school reunion in the earlier jigsaw puzzle part of the book, so that, that makes total sense. Thank you. Yeah, uh, that's how I read it anyway. But uh, yeah, so we've actually got cameos from versions of five other doctors in this uh, in this one. One, two, three, four, ten, and thirteen. So that's yeah. uh, six doctors. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, including the fourth doctor. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, yeah, and the, like you say, the nice little cameo again from the uh, from the thirteenth doctor at the end, uh, which I guess it's gonna it potentially will date the book a little bit in years to come. Um, in the way that the eleventh doctor cameo in an adventure in space and time um, that dates that story a little bit. Right, and of course, there are so many quick bits in this book that don't make any sense unless you're a really deep classic series fan. Mm-hmm. So when the the Harry goes into the village post office to find some ingredient for the doctor's moth machine, and he picks up the ensign and he starts reading the adventures of his favorite boys' good character, Captain Jack Harkaway, which is only going to make sense if you've memorized episode five of The Mind Robber, which was a Patrick Troughton story from 68-69 and it turns out that Harry's a big fan of that fictional fictional character I didn't pick up on that one I've got to admit Uh, we both uh, trumped each other I guess during this recording (laughs) yeah it's been a while since I watched The Mind Robber um, I go back and watch that tonight that's one of my favorite trounts yeah I really like it it's one of the one of the really early ones I got on VHS so I I want to watch it a lot when I was a kid um but yeah, I haven't, I haven't revisited it that recently, so uh, yeah, definitely will need to. And that's also a very trippy, trippy, trippy book with lots and lots and lots of classical allusions. Yes. Yeah, it's probably a good one to reference in this one, isn't it? They do share a bit of DNA in that way. Yeah, and I don't imagine that Tom Baker was sitting at home watching The Mind Robber on DVD. So again, I, I put that all on James Goss. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely got his fingerprints on it. Um, so, in summation, my biggest issue with this book, number one, I thought the humor was a little bit forced and verged on parody rather than organic humor. Mm-hmm. Number two, it didn't capture enough of the period feel for me. If this is a season 12, season 13 adventure, it didn't really play like one. And then lastly, you really have to be a deep, deep fan for large portions of this book to make sense. If you're a casual fan who's picking it up just on a whim because, uh, you know, it's got Doctor Who on the cover. 
I'm not so sure how well a lot of it is going to work for you, especially because a lot of the clinics hinges upon the first three doctors in Scarecrow Forum, or maybe they'll recognize the 13th Doctor cameo, mm. but a lot of the other references will probably just shoot right over the head of the casual reader. Yeah, I don't know if... Um, I think... Because I know that you get that sort of complaint about the, um, especially sort of the, the Moffat era of the of the new series that, that you know that maybe casual viewers will be left behind by too many references. But I think talking to uh, kind of normal people, uh, they do just go kind of go over the head, and and you know it doesn't really take you out of it. I think I would sort of liken it to you know I watch quite a lot of American TV, um, so like me and my wife have been watching The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, um, which is a very funny show on Netflix. Uh, but there's loads of um, references sort of American culture and things like that that we just don't get um, but there's enough kind of stuff that does make sense that we just, just carry on enjoying it so I don't know I, do, I think there's enough in there that um, that, that, that that somebody would pick it up and read it it's a great for me it's a great celebration of the, the fourth Doctor um, I think because it's written in the first person like that and it really captures the humour um, and the way that the fourth Doctor, he's kind, you know, he's having these uh, these kind of very outlandish adventures, but all his frames of reference are very sort of parochial seventies British references, um, which is is quite funny in itself to me. So and I think it'll work better if you're listening to it on audio rather than reading the printed page. I yeah. think Tom Baker's narration might paper over a lot of the stuff that I didn't love about the book. Mm. So maybe I'm not being 100% fair, and maybe this is a book best experienced as an audio rather than as an ebook on my Kindle. Yeah, it would be very interesting to discuss it once we've both heard it, definitely. Yes. Thank you very much for joining me, Jason, to discuss this book. Um, so you didn't enjoy it quite as much as I did, but I think it was a very interesting one to discuss. And thank you for giving me a platform for my dissenting voice. <laughs> uh, so the next time we have you on the podcast... We will be discussing something I'm sure you'll be far more positive about, the Season 18 Blu-ray. You are going to have to physically hold me back from being too yep. effusive on that one. <laughs> and With the even, exception of Megalos, there is not a single thing about that box set that I am not looking forward to. Even K9 and Company? Even K9 and Company. Brilliant. I very much look forward to, uh, to talking that through with you then. Maybe we'll even uh, do a live rendition of the K9 Company theme song. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I haven't got a great singing voice. But then, I mean, not the K9 has, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to have to pay Ian Levine any royalties, though. Uh, here in the States, we have the Fair Use Doctrine. I can give you, I think, four bars of that theme without having to pay Ian Levine. <laughs> well, it and Ian Levine doesn't need my money. No, no, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so that will be probably sometime in April. Um, yes. Assuming no further delays with the release of the box set. Hopefully not. Uh, uh, in the meantime, uh, where can we find you on the internet? You can catch me on Twitter at Dr. Who Novels, Doctor Who Novels. On the top of my feed are a series of posts from Galley. And if I ever get back to updating my blog, I am working on a series of posts about the season 19 Blu ray box set, which is the last one out. And you can catch that, if it goes up, at drwhonovels.wordpress.com, where you can also find my archive posts, primarily about the target novelizations and most of the Hartnell and Troughton original episodes. 
And I would heartily recommend that blog. I'll put links in the show notes so uh, anyone can find it very easily from there. And my apologies to James Goss. I still love your writing. <laughs> well, um, whatever he brings out next, we'll, um, we'll, we'll re- read that and review it as well. Absolutely. Uh, join me next time. Uh, Keith will be back on the podcast, and we will be looking at The Molten Heart by Una McCormack. Uh, In the meantime, please consider uh, leaving a review on iTunes uh, for the podcast. Very much appreciated, everyone who's already done that. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Good night now.